I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's Bill Bukowski, and we're talking about one of the most beloved Viennese composers, Johann Strauss Jr., also known as the Waltz King. He wrote hundreds of waltzes, but where were they performed? Who did he write them for? And why on earth would he try to pass off his dog's hair for his own? Here's a question, Bill, that I never thought could have existed. Are we listening to the Star Spangled Banner or a Viennese waltz? I think that's just kind of crazy. Yeah, I'd say let's split the difference and call it a Star Spangled Waltz. Oh, I like that. That is a moment of Farewell to America by Strauss Jr. I had never heard of that one before, where he combines our national anthem with his um, own Viennese waltz. And that has to do with a tour he did here in the United States. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But of course, still today in 2020, we love waltzes and we love the waltzes of Strauss Jr. I know for me, I really like Where the Lemon Trees Blossom because it kind of has this nostalgic feeling, especially when you're in winter and you're thinking about a time, well, maybe when the trees are blossoming, something like in spring. It just kind of takes you back to a nicer time. Johann Strauss had a real gift of being able to touch people in ways that they weren't even expecting. It's nostalgia is one thing, but also just feeling. He was very, very good at writing the kind of music that people wanted to hear when they wanted to hear it. It's like warm and it's kind of, it brings out the child in you without you realizing that's happening. I think if you listen to enough Waltz music by Strauss, you're going to hear something that's going to touch you, that's going to remind you of something else and put a smile on your face. I think that's one of the reasons why I like his music so much. Is there a particular waltz by Strauss Jr. that puts a smile on your face? There's a couple. Uh, One of them is the Tales from the Vienna Woods, which opens with, there's the sound of a zither, or the first time I heard it, it sounded like a mandolin. And it was so completely unexpected, but it draws you into the world. It actually begins the tale. And as the waltz goes on, the music continues, and just before it ends, right when you think it's over with, it gets quiet, and he brings the zither back with that main theme again to produce a really gorgeous coda. It never fails to put a smile on my face. And like that moment and many others, it's just kind of, you think you know where you're going, and all of a sudden there's something unexpected. Right. So, of course... Strauss and his waltzes are still loved today. We hear them all the time, especially around this time around New Year's with the Vienna Philharmonic and their New Year's Day concert. Andre Ryu and his Johann Strauss Orchestra. I mean, that is just as a touring ensemble. Some of the highest grossing tours in all of music are those tours. And I mean, still selling out stadiums worth of people for audiences. Which is interesting because it reminds us that As long as it's been around, the waltz has never really died out. It's still, people still love it. Part of it is also, I think, at least for me, it's the names. Because in classical music, you know, we've got Symphony No. 4, Sonata 21, a violin concerto. But with these waltzes, it's Tales from Vienna Woods, By the Beautiful Blue Danube, Wine, Woman, and Song, Blossoming Trees. It's just... It evokes your imagination before you even hear the music. Right. The titles alone will draw you in. Like, okay, what is that? What's that going to sound like? 
And the American equivalent is, I think, the marches of John Philip Sousa. These names like Washington Post, The Thunderer, Stars and Stripes Forever. And of course, he went on big tours in the United States as well. Yeah, and band music was was very big in this country. Pretty much any town would set up a bandstand in their town square and there would be a, a group that would play there. Well, in old Vienna, it was the waltz, and it was waltz orchestras that sort of ruled the day. Okay. But let's go back a little bit here because something I didn't know was that the waltz was basically banned in a lot of places in the 18th century and the before the 1800s because I guess it was the first close hold dance. Before this, you were kind of separated from your partner. It was more of a community kind of dancing and you'd switch around, but now you're embracing the other person. And that was just seen as too, uh, that was just too much. Well, you know, it, that shouldn't really surprise you, John, because every generation going back to time out of mind has a dance that appeals to the younger set that scandalizes their parents and their grandparents. It happens all the time, even up to the, our present day. It is happening still exactly to this day. Yeah. But then in the early 1800s, it starts to become popular and loved in the upper class. And of course, that's when it becomes, okay, now it's acceptable. But it took the Viennese by storm. Everyone was just obsessed with what's the new waltz that's coming out? What's newspapers were reporting on it? And Strauss Sr. started his waltz orchestra in 1825. And that is also the same year that his son, Strauss Jr., who we call now today the Waltz King, that's when he was born. So it's all happening in the early part. In fact, this is also a time, this is in Vienna, towards the end of Beethoven's life. He's kind of seeing all this happen, too. That's right. And the composers that were born around the same time that were coming up in this generation, the Waltz was something in the air. It was something that was essentially part of their DNA. And if it became, like anything else in their world, something to be treasured and something to be enjoyed. So Strauss Sr., he has his waltz orchestra, and it's very popular. People are obsessed. But he did not want any of his sons to have a life in music, did he? He was really pushing them to be anything else but a musician. Strauss Sr. was an extremely competitive person. And Part of the reason was we tend to think of the waltz, we tend to think of Strauss, but there were other composers working at the time. Josef Lahner was a, was a big rival at the time, for example. And you were always jealous of the other person's success because you wanted to be the best there was. It was like, um, you know, the NFL or something. It was like, no, your, your team was the best. Your band was the best. And he was extremely competitive and he was also – he didn't want to have competition – from his own family members. That, I think, made him really paranoid. And what happened? That's exactly what happened. Yep. When you tell a kid not to do something and forbid it, of course. Now, of course, now he really wants to do it. And I heard even terribly once he actually beat Strauss Jr. when he saw him practicing the violin. He had been taking lessons. He was uh, a serious parental tyrant, yes. And this rivalry started in 1844. Strauss Jr. is 19 years old. He makes his big composer debut at the Dahlmeyer Casino. And this angered his father incredibly, of course. He refused to play at that venue ever again. But this was a huge moment for Strauss Jr. The newspaper said that Strauss's name will be worthily continued in his son. Children and children's children can look forward to the future. And three-quarter time will find a strong footing in him. 
that's such a great thing for Strauss Jr. But I can also see from what you're saying with Strauss Sr., he's looking at this. It'll be worthily continued. Right. I'm not done yet. That was the last thing he wanted. <laughs> I think he wanted his name to be the one that everybody thought of. He wanted to be the Waltz King. As it turned out, his son would take his place. Let's hear a little bit of one of these really early first waltzes that Strauss Jr. wrote. This actually premiered with his composer debut at this casino. It's the Gunstfeber Waltz, Wooers of Favor. That's just the introduction. It sounds very serioso, but it's always maybe kind of like a fairy tale where it's kind of dangerous, but it's just kind of fun and safety is close by. Right. It draws you right in. And here's where we get to the big theme that starts off this waltz. He's able to make it so much fun with all these little figures, ba-dum, bum, ba-dum, bum, right. that he adds into it. Right. Now you're in three-quarter time, and now people are hitting the dance floor. These waltzes have long introductions, and it's kind of like it's building up to this moment, but you never know when maybe like the needle drops, and then the big fast section comes in, and then it's like a whirlwind. And that's a big difference. These waltzes, the Viennese waltzes, are very fast. It's kind of like a whirlwind compared to but is more familiar maybe in the United States and England, this kind of slower English waltz. Right, yeah. And it's another thing, too, where Strauss wants to be a serious composer, but at the same time, he also wants his, his patrons to dance. He was very, very good at writing the music that the people wanted to hear, uh, much like uh, Mozart, for example, in his day, writing the music that people wanted to hear. And he knew what they wanted. They were just loving his waltzes. They were, again, they're obsessed. The newspaper's writing this next waltz that comes out. Even just a few years later, although he had this huge success, he wasn't all of a sudden a superstar. He was just working, kind of doing his thing. And in 1848, it was not just a rivalry of father and son, but then I guess also on different sides of a revolution, these revolutions that were happening in 1848 in Austria and I read that Strauss Jr. was siding with the revolutionaries. His father didn't, and that's when he wrote the celebratory Radetzky March. And Strauss Jr. was even arrested at one point for playing uh, La Marseillaise. Ah, youth. Yes. Thankfully, he was was let go. He didn't get um, any jail time, I think. You know, it's amazing, too, considering the times he was living and how he managed to get so much work accomplished. And I think that's another thing, too, that we need to point out about Johann Strauss Jr. He was a very, very hard worker. That's exactly it. He was an incredibly hard worker. And that kind of caught up with him a few years later. Uh, Just a year after this action, 1849, Strauss Jr. is 24. And then his father dies of scarlet fever. And that's when Junior takes the opportunity to merge these two orchestras together and getting more popular and more popular. He's working harder and harder and harder. And then in 1853, he had what was written and described as a nervous breakdown. He sounds like he just worked himself to the bone. Yeah, that never stopped throughout his life. You would think that something like that would scare him, but uh, 
No, it just, if anything, once he emerged, he got right back to work, probably trying to, as he thought, probably trying to catch up. Yeah. And he had a little bit of help from Edward, his brother, I believe, joined around this time to help out with the orchestra as none of the sons are supposed to be musicians now. They're all musicians, of course. Right. And, and unlike the father, uh, the sons, the brothers, Edward, uh, Johann, and Josef, all got along very, very well. As a matter of fact, uh, Johann Strauss thought that his brother was a better composer than he was. Unfortunately, that brother did not live long enough to have the kind of career that Strauss Jr. had. He gets this music director of the royal court balls. It's a position. He's in his late 30s. It's 1863. That seems like it was a significant post, maybe at that point as valued as the um, head of music, like, you know, something that Mozart would have had or or these other big composers. Yeah, and the reviews were coming in steadily at this particular time. He was really making a name for himself in Vienna and beyond Vienna as well, as a matter of fact. And beyond Vienna is, right now, the United States. He, in 1872, goes on this tour of the U.S. He, we know he's in Boston and he's in um, New York. Initially, he didn't want to do this. He said, no, of course, it's a huge travel challenge in 1872 to get from Vienna to the United States. They ended up offering him today $300,000 and like all his room and board and his travel paid for. So that's a remarkable uh, fee for for a visiting musician even back then. And so Andre Ryu is doing these huge tours now. And it was, you know, back then America, even then was go big or go home. Because in Boston, they had this World Peace Jubilee and International Music Festival. And it was led by this band leader, Patrick Gilmore, a familiar name in band music. This was a concert of 1,000 musicians, upwards of 100,000 people in the audience. The orchestra was so large, they needed 100 assistant conductors. Strauss Jr. said that it was an absolute feat, that it just even stayed together. He said it was so nervous and gave that downbeat. And then he's looking at the other 100 conductors who have to conduct along with him so everyone can see a conductor. And that he would never forget that feeling of once it was over, wow, that actually happened. Yeah, can you imagine something like that even today? That's, that's quite an accomplishment, especially given the fact that here he was in a strange country and not exactly sure, entirely sure, the caliber of the musicians that he's with or the conductors. Um, it's a remarkable feat. If there's a thousand musicians, Bill, you know, neither of us play the violin, but I'm pretty sure we could have just grabbed an instrument and gone down there and just kind of played along. I mean, who would know? There's a thousand people. Well, I, I think I'd probably let you handle that myself. And that's the thing. He's a superstar in the United States. He didn't, it didn't seem like he was expecting that as much. He was famous, of course, and he was used to it in Europe, but this was on a whole new level. And you can imagine when the uh, beautiful Blue Danube, that nice little sparkling opening happens that the crowd just goes into a roar. Huge concert in Boston. He goes to New York, and he's interviewed by many newspapers. And so the newspaper The Sun in New York had a reporter that asked him, well, how do you like the United States? And with a translator, he said, oh, this country is superb, magnificent. I never had an idea of the grandeur of this country, and I never would have thought that there is so much appreciation of good music here. 
That's not a backhanded compliment, is it? That oh, I'm so surprised you enjoy good music here. Well, you have to remember too that uh, at that particular time in history, America wasn't didn't really have a place on the worldwide stage quite yet. That's true, especially of course, yeah, with music. Yeah, with Strauss and for even Americans at that time, Strauss was coming from what was considered the center of the world, Europe. And the next question for him was, how do you like Boston? And before I read what Strauss said, I just want to preface this. I used to live in Boston. I lived there for four years. I love Boston. I think it's great. It's beautiful. It's I love it. So I'm just trying to cover myself here before I tell you what Strauss Jr. said to how do you like Boston? Because he said, I did not like it. Boston is puritanical, stupid, and dull. Wow. There is no life in the street. There is no display of elegance or luxury. The women are homely and do not dress nicely. I do not like Boston, but with New York, I am perfectly charmed. Ouch. That is rough. And of course, maybe he was, I mean, he's, it took so long to get to the United States. Perhaps he had traveler fatigue. Yeah, that, that could be. Again, he's in a strange country. It's, it's not like he could take a red-eye flight or even just a, a casual flight over. I mean, it was a It was on a ship, and it takes several days, and you're in a strange country, strange food. The water isn't the same. You know, I mean, you've you've traveled, right? Oh, yeah. So somebody is asking him, maybe at that particular time of the day, he was on his, you know, he was on his last nut, and it was like, you're asking me this question? No, I don't like it. So I got to give him a little bit of a break here. Maybe he didn't have time to really visit uh, the real Boston like you did, for example. We'll go with that. He did not see Fenway Park, I think. There you go. Um, but he did end up writing later on a few waltzes about the tour that were then later published. One of them was Sounds of Boston, and this is an interesting little tune that happens in this waltz that made me kind of wonder about his answer as well. That's a fun little moment, but it also makes you wonder, what's he trying to portray? Right, exactly. I was wondering that myself. The sounds of Boston. He complains about the beer, saying that it's disgusting, which, of course, he's from Vienna, you know, and this is in the U.S. in our early days, I think, of uh, brewing beer. So we'll give that one to to Strauss. But he wrote afterwards also this farewell to America that we heard a little bit of in the beginning. I want to listen to a little bit of the very opening of this, because this also to me sounds kind of characteristic American and the kind of wind band music that was happening. love that raspberry. I love that. You don't know it's going here and then here. And then all of a sudden, you just don't know where the waltz comes in. And then it kind of tricks you when it does. And it's just, it puts a smile on your face. It's interesting. It sounded like uh, sort of he went from the bandstand to the waltz hall. Yes. There's one more thing I want to mention about the tour, because I think you physically can't mention this when you're talking about the tour. This has never happened to me, Bill. 
don't know if it's happened to you, but apparently admirers, they love to have a lock of your hair at this time. Uh-oh. It's not happened to me, but they want a lock of your hair. I guess it was kind of like um, an autograph or it was just something to have. Well, Strauss Jr. was so popular that it was just not possible. But apparently he had this big Newfoundland dog that had hair just like his and would go on tours with him as well. They would just go in the back and start cutting the dog's hair and handing them out to to women. And they thought it was Strauss Jr.'s hair. Actually, that's uh, pretty clever, you know, It, but it does. It reminds me of uh, Beatlemania when there were stories of people attacking the Beatles with scissors. And, you know, that could be very dangerous. Oh, my gosh. No, thanks. You need a Newfoundland dog. Yes. So when you think of these waltzes being premiered and played and danced to, it can't just be at every cafe corner. But in fact, I've learned that there are these huge events, these balls that happen in Vienna. And in fact, at one point in time, there were hundreds of balls every year in Vienna for pretty much any association. Is that right? Yeah, like Inauguration Day every day or something. It's uh, it was The waltz craze was really, really big. And, of course, everybody had their little party. There were graduation parties. There were coming out parties, debutante balls, that sort of thing. And celebratory, you know, end of the year for a business or um, for a special holiday or for a birthday. If you could afford it, if you could afford to have one of these things, you would. And you wanted to get one of the very best bands that were available at the time. Engineering students, authors and journalist associations, hunters, even Strauss wrote a ball. I mean, he wrote a waltz that was I think it's streams of lava for a Mount Vesuvius eruption charity ball. That would not surprise me at all. I think as a composer, Strauss was in the same tradition as composers that went before him, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven. You were writing for an occasion for a commission. And if somebody was commissioning you to write, in this case, a waltz to be performed at their ball, you would want to do something that was just right for them. And what's right for the engineers, apparently, is an acceleration waltz. That's the title of this. And there's moments where the music slows down and then just gets faster and faster. This is a fascinating work, by the way. are nice concert recordings, but I can imagine part of the fun is it just gets faster and faster, especially at the end, to where you all just kind of collapse. Yeah, and it's as a as a dancer, you're probably not aware of it. Let's say you're hearing it for the first time, and it's like you start spinning, and then you have to go faster and faster and faster. It's a wonder they all didn't collapse afterwards. Oh, I didn't think about it. That's right. If it's your first time hearing it, it's like, uh, you know, getting boiled in a pot just, you know, slowly. Right. And here's the other thing, that too, that's fascinating about it. You don't have to know anything about any of that to enjoy the music. That's one of the things that's so special about it. As an engineer, at the time hearing that, it would put a smile on their faces, but might actually kind of uh, confuse some of their dates. But at the same time, you can just enjoy it for the music that it is. And here's a waltz that he wrote, but actually he didn't name it. He left it up to the Vienna Authors and Journalists Association to name it, this Morning Papers Waltz. So we'll hear a little bit of this one, this tail end of the intro, and then getting into the big first waltz theme.
I love that just when it's you're waiting for it to happen and then it happens. I think that's still a big part of music today when you're thinking about clubs and dance, electronic music. It builds up slowly, 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 then the bass drops and you know, then everyone's, you know, screaming. Right, and then it kicks in. Exactly. He knew what to do and it's the rock and roll of its day. A lot of these waltzes that I can think of, they have many different themes. It gets kind of traded around, and it gets brought from instrument or section to section, and there's always this kind of fun moment with the brass. I mean, it's just fun. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. This goes on just basically for much of his life. He's writing these waltzes. He gets into some more serious music, as he says, trying to break into operas and operettas a little bit. But he's popular up until his death in 1899. He was 73. He just died of pneumonia. Yeah, and the commissions kept coming in. It wasn't He wasn't the type of person that would refuse them either. Not only were they lucrative, but... He knew how to write the music that the people wanted to hear and that the people were expecting, and he was good at it. And it was he was a very, very successful composer from a business standpoint as well. His entire life, he is successful with this. There's not a lot of artists, um, musicians, who are able to find their niche like that and then just really take it all the way to the end. And he never stopped. That's the other thing. He never rested on his laurels when he he could have. I mean, he... Essentially, he made a fortune and made a bundle, and he could have stopped at any time and retired, but he, he never did. He was a very, very hard worker, and it's probably what contributed to his death. Probably. And his legacy has lived on, of course, for the next hundred and something years. We have Andre Ryu in that touring Strauss Orchestra. There was another one as well. I think there's actually a few. We have it appearing in Famously, uh, the beautiful Blue Danube in Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey film. That is, I mean, it's just perfect for that. It's kind of this ultimate floating sound, and of course you're floating in space. Right, and, and the dance between the space station and the, the spaceship that was docking into it. It's, it's a remarkable use of uh, classical music and film. And we have the Vienna New Year's concerts that are with the Vienna Phil, but also, from what I understand, throughout Vienna starting in the in this century, really playing music of the Strauss family. But there is one event that is kind of sad. A few years after his death in 1907, his brother Edward actually burnt much of the family's music by, by everyone. Really? I didn't know that. Yes, this was 1907, and he, he burns it. And it's not like, okay, you know, I start a fire at home in a barrel and just kind of throw some paper in. He had to call around to factories to find an incinerator large enough because they said he had hundreds of kilos of music, thousands, tens of thousands of pages. It took a long time. And he finds a place that lets him burn the music and he goes and he's always well, throwing it all into this incinerator. And it's taking a while. And apparently the owner of the factory came down and was like, I thought you said this was like waste or something. This looks like well-written, this, this, is, this is music. Are you sure you should be burning this? And um, he's like, oh, yeah, it's it's garbage. Don't worry about it. One wonders what uh, got went up in the fire. Well, we have a lot of the music today in slightly different form. So it's a lot of the same tunes, but maybe the orchestration's a little bit different. But the thing was, Edward was saying that this was actually a pact between himself 
and his brother Yosef saying whoever survived the longest would get rid of all the music to prevent adversaries or competition of taking some of the music and claiming it as their own. I'm seeing the ghost of their father. He has no evidence for this claim, but that's what he said, and that's what happened. Again, that just reinforces what we said earlier. The Waltz business was a very competitive business. And it's also, I think, worth pointing out, too, that you know we've been talking about the music that Strauss wrote for a particular commission or for a particular purpose or whatever. But it's too easy to listen to the music and say, well, it's all in three-quarter time and sort of dismiss it. But... When you listen to any of them, pick any any waltz, the by the beautiful Blue Danube, or where the lemon trees blossom, or one of my favorites, the Emperor Waltz. There's something more going on here that indicates that it's not just something to dance to; it's something that you can listen to and appreciate for the sheer artistry of it. And Johann Strauss Jr. was an artist of the very highest caliber. There's a story that I love, uh, John, if you don't mind me telling the story here. Strauss and Brahms were contemporaries. Strauss was uh, about 10 years older than Johannes Brahms, but they were sort of a mutual admiration society. And Brahms didn't hand out his friendships very willingly. He was a bit of a curmudgeon. But the two of them got along famously. And there was a story one time that he was at a dinner and someone approached him and asked for his autograph. So he took the paper and he wrote the first nine notes of the theme from By the Beautiful Blue Danube. And underneath it he wrote... Unfortunately, not by Johannes Brahms. I mean, what can you say more besides that? Yeah, if Brahms considered him to be a great composer, then who are we to argue? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, John. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any comments or ideas for episodes, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA. ¶¶